Warning, the following podcast may be harmful to your marriage or relationships if used in an attempt to change anyone but yourself. Are you dead, old buddy? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. This episode is titled, Faith Distortions That Hurt Our Marriages, and my guest is Dr. Daryl Smith. Okay, I have my good friend Daryl Smith here, and if you haven't heard of Daryl before, he is the author of uh, book that came out what about a year ago Daryl yes sir okay and it's called faith lies seven incomplete ideas that hijack faith and how to see beyond them that's right so you're gonna help us see beyond some some incomplete ideas today I, I make no promises <laughs> hopefully in uh, we'll do our best to link it to, to how we relate to each other more specifically our significant other spouse fiance boyfriend girlfriend you bet but um okay just tell me a little bit about what you why you wrote this book in the first place daryl sure um it's it's kind of a reflection of my journey that i went through personally uh, in my faith and some of the experiences that i'd had or crises that i'd faced um just didn't seem to work. I couldn't make sense of them with the faith that I had from my childhood, uh, being raised in the church, and I picked up some ideas along the way, um, well-meaning ideas. They weren't, no one was trying to fool me or deceive me, but I picked up some ideas that I would say were just too small to hold the life that I was living or experiencing, and uh, my journey through wrestling with those things and then being a student and being a pastor led me to be able to categorize them in some way. And I I labeled them as faith lies, um, bad ideas, incomplete ideas that I had picked up along with it. I kind of had to unlearn where I landed on the other side of those. Okay. And I'm sure you're still discovering some stuff along the way, right? Absolutely. The book is about the first or the most important seven of those ideas that I um, have categorized, but it's certainly never, and it's a never-ending journey, and I've I discover more and more every day. Okay, so um, now you're a pastor. I I was thinking that you were just a musician. <laughs> to all the musicians <laughs> out there, let me just say there's no such thing as just a musician, um, but I am. I am a pastor, yes. Yes, yeah. and uh, how long have you been doing that? Uh, well, I've been working, uh, serving in the church where I am since 99, so 20 years, uh, and I've been appointed as pastor of uh, discipleship. I mean, education titles changed a couple different times for the last six years. So t- tell me what kind of education uh, you have that's helped you understand the Bible better. You know, I was talking to someone this morning, uh, actually one of my mentors, and when I went to seminary, the, my almost my entire first year of seminary, every time I would come out of class, I would be very frustrated that I had, in my thought, I had spent my, you know, I'd come up in the church, I was raised in the church, I'd been to vacation Bible school, I'd been to Sunday school class, and I was coming out of these seminary classes as an adult going, why hasn't even anyone ever told me this stuff? And I was very frustrated that um, as much experience as I thought I had with the church, that I hadn't, um, in my opinion, received the helpful information that I needed to make sense of my life. Uh, well, what's an example of one of those things you like that? Why hasn't anybody ever told me? Oh, gosh. I, you know, I have a really distinct uh, memory very early on. The first year I got to spend 
uh, an entire year with a uh, studying the Torah with a professor that that's all that professor taught was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he's a very great teacher. Uh, but I remember early on in the first semester of that year when we were talking and walking through the Exodus that it was it occurred to me for the first time in the teaching and reading that, that I was receiving that the ten plagues were not just random gross things, blood and frogs and flies, and um, that it was that each of those plagues represented a, a working Egyptian god at the time, huh. a working Egyptian deity that um, so that this story unfolds uh, with the one God of the Israelites saying all these other things, all these other the Nile and the frog God and the livestock God, these things that you think, have power they all work for me i can control and manipulate all of these things so it was a very um subversive statement about who this god is and all the other forces at work in our lives being subject to that god and i thought that was pretty important as much as i'd heard the exodus story that no one ever told yeah. me there was a reason that those things were the things involved in the plagues wow so there's just so much more than what's right written in the in the black and white. Absolutely. So the the, the cat god because I see little statues of ancient. Why didn't that you know? Wouldn't that have been a great? We should plague? have had. A, I think that plague continues. <laughs> Sorry to all your cat uh, loving listeners out there, but the, the cat plague continues yes. on the earth. Yeah. I had a a, a brother in law who shall remain nameless in a neighborhood we lived in, grew up, grew up in, our kids grew up in the same cul-de-sac and yeah. we started to have a cat infestation and he brought it to the homeowners and uh, nobody knew what to do so he suggested everybody getting a, a good powerful pellet gun and right. uh, i think that got voted down um okay <laughs> <laughs> lest Peter get involved we uh, are not condoning the harm right. of any animals right right no cats cats should should be able to Make their own choices and absolutely. And, <laughs> okay, so uh, was this in seminary that you're talking about? Yes, that okay. was the first year, or maybe yeah, first year of seminary. Maybe. Okay, so you have a. Tell me what degrees you have. Uh, religious. Do you have a high school diploma. I, I do have. I did okay. graduate from high school, <laughs> okay. and that is by the grace of God. Uh, <laughs> lots of patient people that let me graduate from high school. Uh, so I. I have a seminary degree, a master's in Christian ministry, and then I did my doctoral work in ancient Hebraic liturgy, so which is a doctorate of worship studies from uh, the Weber Institute for Worship Studies. All right. Yeah. Now, the, the, I, I didn't bring that up so you could brag on yourself. I just yeah. I just want people to understand we're, we're talking about somebody who's relatively more knowledgeable than the rest of us about Old Testament. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know if that's the case. I, I have heard smarter people say than me that the further you go in uh, education, all it means is you have more to say about less and less. So I think that's probably there, true. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to bring in some stuff that I got in this book that I, I thought this has a lot to do with relationships and more particular, in particular, our marriages, because we are... You know, some of our biggest, the dynamics between a couple that underlie, you, you know, you, you, you know, when you have an argument with your spouse mm -hmm. and the next day you realize it wasn't really about that. It wasn't really about what we were arguing about. There was something deeper there. Yeah. And sometimes you can't put your finger on it. And I, to me personally, it's just I can almost always narrow it down to one of two things. It's some kind of power struggle. Or um, there's a lack of acceptance that that one's withholding acceptance of the other saying, you know, if you become more like the way I think, then I'll accept you more. And um, so w one of the chapters in, in your book, chapter four, mm -hmm. or lie number four, I'm supposed to protect and defend God and my faith. So you're saying that's a lie. Yeah. And so, first of all, tell me. Well, just I'm gonna let you kind of go free, free form here. Why is that a lie? And 
what in the world, if anything, does it have to do with relating to your significant other? Hmm. Uh, the second part's definitely an interesting question. The first part, why that was a lie for me, and it may not be a lie for everyone else. I, I certainly don't want to read my experience onto others and, and say that it's, it's gospel. But uh, my experience coming up in the faith tradition in which I was raised, I had picked up this idea that as a dutiful Christian, as a dutiful follower of Jesus, I had a responsibility to protect the faith, to defend the faith, to stand up to anyone who would attack Jesus or uh, anything that would attack attack the, the institution of the church or... Or more importantly, my understanding of Jesus and the church. Very, very good point. <laughs> um, and I, ha- I think it was my father that first... You can't see of, the tongue in, in our cheeks right now. No, I'm absolutely. <laughs> I think it was my father that first kind of crack, showed me the crack in that foundation um, when he told me, you know, anytime that you feel like you're out in front of God fighting for God, you are in trouble. Hmm. You are you are in a dangerous place. You should be behind Jesus, following Jesus, not out in front defending. Um, and that just that simple exchange kind of put set me on a path of examining where I picked up that idea. And there's some scriptures that get manipulated here, you know, be prepared to give a defense of your faith. Mm-hmm. Um, it just says be prepared, doesn't say to do it. Right? Yeah, well, and, <laughs> and what do we mean when we say give a defense of your faith? I mean, I don't think we mean launch counterattacks. And then when we just zoom out and see the holistic picture of the story of the scriptures, or even if you zoom in and just see the example of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus is continually bombarded with attack and conflict and those that would disagree with him and tell him that the way that he holds God and scripture is wrong. And he never counterattacks. Even the Pharisees who kind of get a bad rap in the scripture, Jesus always handles them with respect. Uh, One of my uh, mentors and pastor that I got to work under for a long time, David Magnitsky, always reminded me that the, that Jesus never didn't treat the Pharisees like family. He, if you really look at it, it's a family, it's a fight, but it's a family argument. Okay. Um, and so... So let me push back on that a bit. Yeah, go ahead. What about his uh, whitewashed sepulchers, seapuckers, yeah. as I used to remember? Well, you're the you're you're the marriage and family expert, and um, I I can only say that I'm an expert on some of the arguments that my wife and I have had. But uh, we have used some some words in our exchanges that were pretty harsh and pretty. Uh, it doesn't doesn't mean the love's not there, huh. uh, or that the passion's not there. It's actually the passion is reflected in the intensity. I would say. Mm. Um, so even you know being a harsh critic. Um, or even being insulting sometimes. And Jesus certainly wasn't trying to be that. I'm not putting that on Jesus, but... He's pointing out the attitude from which they're coming from, I guess. Yeah. And sometimes we speak to the people that we really love. If we were to write that, write that down, write down how that conversation went and then read it later when we're uh, in cooler heads, right. it might read as really harsh and violent, but... You know, it's just an impassioned argument between people that care about each other. So are you saying Jesus loses his cool now and then? Uh, I don't know about now and then. There's certainly (laughs) at least one example of of Jesus uh, not being afraid to be angry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how so I I like this idea that I've you may be one of the first people I remember. Maybe it was in this book just. putting to words a, a thought that I've had a long time that our job is not to stand up for God. God doesn't need anybody to stand up for God. How might that play out in a relationship where what you're talking about can get in the way? Yeah. Um, you know, s- simply put, and I, I don't have to tell you this, but simply put, it'd be this idea that the greatest good is being right. Mm. It's being the the correct one. And I don't see that as being the greatest good that's modeled in the scriptures or in the life of Jesus and the gospels that Jesus could have 
trashed people in debates and arguments, but he never did. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't. He didn't seem to have lived a life that says the greatest good is to be right. Um, he seems to have modeled for us that the greatest good is to be loving, mm-hmm. um, to be merciful, to be patient, to pursue and believe in the greatest good uh, for another, and to receive them um, in the possibility of their best selves rather than react or defend or fight against their worst self. Um, because you do, especially in a marriage or an intimate relationship, you're not just going to get that person's best. You're going to get their worst too. Almost exclusively. Like we don't give our worst to just anyone. Right. Uh, We usually give our worst to the people that we feel the safest around. Yes. um, Those that love us the most. So it's actually kind of a privilege to see people at their worst. And just knowing that maybe helps soften. You know, that's a great point. I didn't, expect you to go there but I, I i tell couples the person who hurts you the most should be your spouse yeah. <laughs> no question <laughs> and, and, and that doesn't mean we should go hurting our spouses but the more you have invested in a relationship the more that when that person does something that that that, that person that you are more invested in they can say something to you that if somebody else said it, it wouldn't hurt much. That's right. But but it hurts a lot more because you, you're so much more invested in that relationship. The evidence is overwhelming. Reputable and proven marriage intensives have a far higher success rate than counseling or therapy for marriages that are struggling or even failing. I myself am a counselor. I earned my master's degree in marriage and family therapy, and I see multiple couples in my office on a weekly basis. But unless it's premarital counseling, I don't work with a couple until after they have been through a proven intensive. I've now led more than 126 such intensives over the past 15 years. The University of Washington found that only 17% of couples in crisis who start with counseling will still be married just two years later. However, two separate studies have shown that at least 72% of the couples who have attended an intensive that I conducted are still married. You can't find a better choice for turning your marriage around than our intensive Love Reboot. Come join the thousands who have attended a Love Reboot and are now experiencing a thriving, vibrant marriage. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. That's growinglovenetwork.org. Yeah, uh, my friend and uh, author, scholar, uh, Alexander Shia, says, and he said something the first time, I, I know it's in his one of his books, but the first time it, I heard him say it and resonate, um, I was particularly hurt uh, by, a, by a friend. It wasn't my, my, my wife, but... I was particularly hurt and betrayed and I was trying to process, you know, how to be a good Christian in this behavior and how do I respond, but stand up to this bad behavior and make it clear that that's not okay. And we're not going to tolerate that, but at the same time, (laughs) and Alexander reminded me that when Judas comes to tell, to kiss Jesus and show the Romans where Jesus is so that Jesus can be taken into custody. Jesus looks up and says to him, friend, Hmm. friend, do what you're here to do. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't say villain. He doesn't say betrayer. He doesn't curse him. He calls him friend. Do what you're here to do. And he lets him do it. And that just, I know I'm not in the middle of a marital dispute right now as I sit here before you. So I'm thinking real calmly and clearly, (laughs) but it just having that in me. Um, takes the fangs out of a lot of my bitterness and anger when I'm in arguments. Yeah. Yeah. A year after Joanne and I got married, which would be almost 34 years ago now, we moved to Colorado from Texas. Mm. And we got plugged into a church right off the bat. It was one of those uh, sanctuary, auditorium, whatever you call them, that was kind of fan-shaped, half-circle. 
pretty big, you know, probably 800 people a, a Sunday. And we kind of got, after a few Sundays, it was kind of like, I like to sit over on this side. And Joanna was like, well, I like sitting on this side. Yeah. And then that grew into, well, I think we should sit on this side because these are the people we need to be feeding. And the other person, well, I think we should sit on this side because these are the people we need to be fed by. And <laughs> then that turned into, you know, I've been praying about it. And, oh. and <laughs> you just dropped Jesus into the middle of the Right, thing, right. You know? Yeah, our, our desire to be right, to have the, the be doing the right thing started outweighing our desire to love each other. Yes. And that's where it gets messed up. Yeah. And it's really easy to do and we're not ever going to, you know, be cured of that. Uh, we're going to work on it in this lifetime where we're going to engage disciplines and hopefully ideas that help us grow. But, you know, I think it's... Friedman, Edwin Friedman, the who wrote on family systems theory, talks about you know your family when you're being raised installs these buttons in you, um, and <laughs> yeah. your spouse learns how to press them. Yes, <laughs> um, and and then we're reminded that I can certainly be triggered by things by buttons my spouse pushes, um, but she didn't install them. Right. So when I get really triggered, it's not necessarily the argument that we're having that's only on the table. It's also whatever baggage and wounding I'm carrying from my past yes. that has been triggered by that. And it's not a fair fight, I guess. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a, a lot of what I'm, I help couples process is figure out where these, you know, they, they, we, we all have these core fears and we tend to when those fears arise in us when we're interacting with our spouse we tend to think they're the source of those fears mm. and um, that rarely are they no <laughs> they yeah. might they might have done some stuff that adds to the fear but they're rarely the source of it but we tend to treat them and when we think they're they're the source of the fear we lash out at them a lot more readily than than we do if we recognize that that fear was in there before we ever met them absolutely yeah I, there's a good friend of mine who has shared with me that his therapist has taught him a scale of one to 10. If his reaction on a, to something on a scale of one to 10 is greater than like a four, that it's probably from his childhood or past, <laughs> that it's not necessarily the thing in the moment that right. is connected to other things in the past. But how often do we have that reaction on a scale of one to 10 in the present, you know, and, and just give that moment in the present or that issue in the present all of our venom, um, and it's really hard to walk that back. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> but, but it definitely happens. Takes some uh, a lifetime of getting better and better at receiving and sharing grace. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's just kind of linked to the next um, the next lie in your book. There's one right way to believe and one right way to behave. Yeah. So talk about why that's a lie. I think what Is I have, it, yeah, go ahead. I mean, even if I really study the Bible carefully, can't I figure out what its original intent was? Hmm. Um, so I would counter that by asking the question about, could you go into a library here in town and come out and, and study and come out with what the original intent of the library was? Hmm. That's... Yeah. That sounds a little scary. Yeah, it'd be tough to do. Um, there'd be books in there. Um, most of the books in there would not have the, each other in mind when they were written. Um, you wouldn't go in and expect that the book at the public library on philosophy is going to be aware of or acknowledge the book on anthropology in another section of the library, that they would even speak about each other. But we have to kind of reconnect to the idea that the word Bible in and of itself and its origin even means library. That when we pick up the Bible, we're not picking up a book. We're picking up a library of books written over thousands of years by people on different continents in different languages uh, with different experiences. And so to say that I'm going to, you know, get the one thing out of this library is, you know, if nothing else, it's leaving a lot of meat on the bone. You should get a lot out of it, more than one thing. Mm. Not that it's not united, not that it's not 
um, connected by the Holy Spirit. I, I certainly attest to all of that. But this idea that I'm <clears throat> that I was wrestling within the lie is this lie of how do we understand the word orthodox? Because um, we'll talk about orthodox belief, which is orthodoxy, or we'll talk about um, right practice, which is orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. And that word ortho, which we more commonly... It has something would, to do with your mouth, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we more commonly understand it in like orthopedic doctors or orthodontists. Mm-hmm. Well, that word ortho really in its origin means right, true, straight, you know, think just getting things aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an orthodontist aligns your mouth and an orthopedic doctor aligns your bones. Um, so the idea I think that I picked up is kind of what you mentioned that somewhere in my faith, I'm supposed to find, um, the one thing I think it was, what's the movie city slickers with yeah. where Curly tells <laughs> oh, the yeah. guy, you got to find the one thing yes. he tells Billy Crystal. What if instead of saying that there's one path, one way um, to understand this, that the orthodox or the orthopraxies were more of a logbook of ways that have been helpful. So rather than saying there's one line that we all need to get ourselves on, what if it was the tradition of our faith to say, hey, here are the helpful paths that we have taken and before you hold on to these paths and try these, they may work for you. They may not, you may need to try a different, um, example, but instead of saying there's this one way, what if there's a whole bunch of ways that we can try and we get this, you know, we don't just think all we need to do is fast. We also, we say fasting is a spiritual discipline among others like prayer and worship and service and we we you know journaling mm-hmm. journaling to me is like nails on a chalkboard like <laughs> i would rather do anything else other than journal uh-huh. but there are people that that is a profound spiritual orthodox practice for them that helps them connect to their relationship with god and their relationship to others and why would i want to tell them because it's not ortho for me it doesn't help me get right true and straight um, that it does that it shouldn't be for them. All of these things are valid. Um, all of these ideas. It's just it's more of a spectrum rather than one simple note. If that yeah. makes sense. And what I what, what you're saying when I see it come up in relationship is that we tend to think that our spiritual disciplines are the best. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah. the ones that everybody else should be doing. And I can, I, I love a good worship service with good music and meaningful music. And, uh, but I can only do so much of that. Yes. And, um, and I start to spiritually shut down. Yes. Um, <laughs> where my wife can do it all day. She could listen to Hillsong United and Jesus culture all day, yeah. which that's great music. But I, I, I'm I'm good for about three, four songs of that, and then and then I'm like, let's that's pulling me away from God yes. right now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I could. A lot of my early marriage was plagued by this bad idea that that the goal of our marriage was for us to become more alike. That mm-hmm. I needed to be, I needed to learn to love all the things she loved, and she needed to learn to love all the things I loved. And we needed to develop the same taste and the same style. And no, no, like that's a that's a nightmare. It's horrible <laughs> to think about what that would become. Like um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief Lord Rabbi uh, of the UK, and he's now retired, but he's still a brilliant teacher and author. Talks. He retired from following God. No, he just retired from <laughs> from running Judaism in the United Kingdom. Um, but he. <laughs> tells he brilliantly unpacks uh, this midrash uh, around the story of Adam and Eve because a lot of times we hear the story of Adam and Eve he points out that we tend to do this really simple um, kind of ridiculous reductional idea of saying well Adam came first and Eve came from Adam therefore Eve should be subject to to Adam that it's some kind of 
um, male has priority over female, that that's what we're supposed to take away from the story. And he just blows that out of the water using the, the traditions of Judaism and Midrash, ancient Midrash, to say what's actually going on there, what's actually being said. Well, what if? What if what's actually being said there is that we can't understand ourselves without another? And so he points out that what happens in the Hebrew poem there, the way that it's written, there's two words that you can use to describe man in Hebrew. So you can say Adam. Here we would say in South Texas, we say Adam. Adam. Um, but the Hebrew word is, is Adam, which means dirt, but it also means humankind, also means humanity. And then there's this word ish, which means like man, like just that man over there, that ish over there. Okay. Okay. Well, the word ish doesn't appear in the entire poem until after Eve. So every time that you read in your Bible in English, uh, you know, Adam, 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 that's the only word that gets used until Adam goes to sleep and Eve is created. And when Adam wakes up, he looks at her and utters the first human poem of the Bible, right? He says, she shall be called, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. She shall be called woman. And what he says there is Isha, because that's how you say woman. You say Isha for woman and Ish for man. And so he looks at her and says, she shall be called Isha for she was taken from Ish. And so Rabbi Sachs points out that that's not a statement of priority. That's a statement of you can't say me until you know there's a you. I can't say Ish until I know what an Isha is. I can't understand who I am until I compare myself hold myself up to another and then I can see how we're different and then I can start naming things. That's different. So I'm going to call it an Isha and I'm an Ish, but I have to have the Isha to know that. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's that reminder that the diversity is not a threat. It's not something to be stomped out or made into uniformity. The diversity is actually what lets us know who we are, where our edges are. And so like you're talking about you and your wife and the music, it's it's her experience of praise music helps you define where your boundary is and know who you are to know that you need just this much praise music, uh, a small amount before you're done. Um, you know, but you have to have that comparison and without it, you're just alone. Okay, well, you you got me. <laughs> But you've got some, uh, some of the people listening to this, you might have lost them at poem. Okay. <laughs> so that would be a scary word to hear for some people, yeah. calling, calling um, the book of Genesis a poem. Well, not the book, uh, the creation. The creation. Chapter one and chapter two. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so unpack why you use the word poem. I use that word because uh, that is an accurate word to use, um, both in terms of how the um, Genesis 1 and 2 are written. If you um, read them in Hebrew or look at them in Hebrew, they are written in the structure of, of a poem. And so there's like a, a literary way to look at that, just words on the page and, and to process those that... Um, if I were to give you the same examples in English, you would recognize a poem. You, you know, you know structure. when you pick up poetry. When, when you hear there once was a man from Dublin, you know it's a poem. <laughs> yes, you yes. Know you, you know what's going on. Um, so, so there is that structure. So poem, poem doesn't make it untrue. Oh my gosh, no. I would say for me, poem makes it more true. Um and we have to start to have that conversation. We have to start talking about what we mean by true. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of us in this part of the world and what we'd call the Western world with our um, Western influence, which really is a Greek influence or Hellenistic influence, a way of thinking and processing the world. When we use words like that now, we tend to say things. When we say true, what we mean is... Um, historically true, literally true is what we mean. But that's not the only kind of truth, and we all know that. We all know that the Song of Solomon is a poem. Yeah, 
because it's literally in the title. It tells you, <laughs> yes. right? It's a song. Yes. Um, so you know when you pick that up that you're not reading history. And we don't throw it out because it's a poem. Absolutely not. To the to the contrary, um, you know, we, I get to do a lot of work with um, people in recovery through a, a place in town called Haven for Hope. And a lot of times when we have this discussion down there, uh, we'll ask them to raise their hand if they've ever experienced anything beautiful. Have you ever seen something beautiful, um, smelled, tasted, touched something beautiful? Have you had an experience of beauty? Every hand goes up. In the room. Mm-hmm. And then when you say, prove it. And keep your hand up if you can prove it. <laughs> Every hand goes down. Well, does that make the beauty of the experience not true? Does that make them liars? Of course not. They did have experiences of beauty, just like all of us have. And those experiences are true. But just because they can be verified or produced in a laboratory or... Um, you know, written in a history book doesn't make it not true. There's there's truth beyond what is literally historically verifiable. Yeah. What's the, the passage in uh, Proverbs where there's two back-to-back? Answer not a fool in his folly. Oh, okay. And then don't answer a, and then answer a fool in his folly. Yeah. Which one's true? It depends on the moment, they right? They both are, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 But they say the opposite thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like, um, we have expressions, right? Where someone says, I I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Well, we can probably all relate to that as a true experience. That's not literally true. No. There's a funny one for me, and I think it's in Deuteronomy. We we quote this passage all the time, right? That that we talk about the the Lord is slow to anger. Right, you, you've heard. Hopefully, you've heard that. And right. If you haven't heard that, let me be the first to tell you: <laughs> the Lord is slow to is slow to anger, and that's a good thing. But if you really go to the Hebrew where we get that phrase, what it actually says is the Lord is long of nostril. Um, that's the actual what's written in your Bible that gets translated as the Lord is slow to anger. Is the Lord's got a big nose? So for those who want to say, I take my Bible straight and just means the literal truth, I kind of want to invite them to return to their big nosed God and see what that means to them. But once it got translated to English, it it was all clear. (laughs) Yeah, right. right. I mean, the point there is that that was a that was a metaphor, uh, a Hebraic metaphor to say what the. Israelites were saying was when we noticed that when we get angry, our nostrils flare and our breath becomes uh, faster and we're taking in more oxygen because we're ready for a fight because we're angry now. And so someone who has large nostrils gets plenty of oxygen and air and can stay calm breathe deep, and breathe deep and not get triggered. And so by saying the Lord has a, is long of nostril, they were saying the Lord is slow to anger. But if we were going to just say there's no poetry in the Bible, there's no universal truth in the Bible, it's only literal truth, well, then we're going to lose that and we're going to end up with a big nose God. <laughs> That's a great... I never heard that said before. Okay, I'm going to make this short and to the point. The podcast you're listening to, Relationship Rewire, is a free service to the public provided by Growing Love Network, a nonprofit organization. That means we don't make a profit. In fact, to be able to do what we do, which is to provide top-notch innovative help for marriages, we rely on donors so that everyone can have access to the help they need, regardless of the ability to pay. Won't you take a moment, hit the pause button, and go to growinglovenetwork.org. Click on the donate button and give what you can. If you're not sure about it at this moment, hit pause anyway, just for 15 seconds, and ask yourself if this is what you should do. Go ahead. I'll wait. Hello, this is Max Lucado. You're listening to Relationship 
rewire. There, I did hear you just a couple days ago. You referred to the Bible as something that illuminates our path. Yeah. What What was the terminology used? Yeah, I think that's what I said. Um, so I learned... These writings that... Yeah, so Jeff Barker was one of my professors when I was doing my doctoral work. Great teacher. Oh my gosh, he's got a great book called The Storytelling Church. Check it out. Um, love Jeff Barker. Love that book. Um, but he has taught me um, this way to introduce the scripture. I completely... Oh, there goes the phone. Fraud risk. <laughs> I, he has taught me this way to introduce the scripture. I completely ripped it off from him, so I don't want to take credit. Um, but he's, he's taught us to be very concerned um, and deliberate with how we present the scripture, that it's meant to be heard and, and cherished and chewed on in community. And so present it that way. Don't just say, a reading from 1 Corinthians 13, you know, and, and monotone, read it out. Yeah, um, Jeff said, bring the theater, bring the drama to it. Let it have the space that, it's need, that it needs. And, and one of the ways that he um, taught us to set it up was with this phrase. Listen to this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that we love. That's, that's it. It's most basic, hmm. you know. And then, and then you say from the first chapter of John. Listen to this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that we love. But then he taught us, now play with that structure. Because sometimes you'll want it to, you'll be going in a different, different direction. So this past um, teaching that I did was about the word, the scripture lighting our, you know, being a light into our path, as mm -hmm. the scripture itself says. Right. And so I said, listen to this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that illuminates our path. Because it is that. It is the book that we love, but it's also the book that illuminates our path. It's the book that breathes freedom. It does so many of these things. So it's just and, having fun with that phrase. And to me, that just uh, using descriptions like that, as opposed to just the Bible, yeah. it, it makes it more alive. It makes it more, instead of something a bunch of old dead people wrote, yeah, um, yeah it makes it more alive. I think it makes God even bigger, not smaller. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 playing, and I get it. I'm not trying to run down tradition. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly was raised in the tradition where you say, from the first chapter of John, and then you read the scripture, and then you say, this is the word of the Lord. And everybody says, thanks be to God, right? <laughs> um, I get that, and I get where that tradition comes from. But there's some times where that's really confusing. So if I were to read you from the Psalms, and say, um, dash the heads of my enemy's babies on the rocks. This Praise is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You'd be like, <laughs> wow, God sounds pretty ticked off. Like, uh, um, and, and really, we know that the Psalms are not the words of God to us. They're our words to God. That's literally what the Psalms are. So to say... These are the, they just blanket like that. It's, it's, it can be very confusing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, sometimes we seem to get, you know, we separate our relationship with our spouse from all our other relationships, but it's really just all, I mean, there's some things that happen between husband and wife that shouldn't be happening between friend and friend or right. coworker or whatever. But for the most part, we're still even if, even if that's happening on a regular basis, it's still a small percentage of of your life. Uh, if that's making sense, help me a little more. Well, sex would be one of them. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, but for the most part, I see marriage as kind of the microcosm of all our other relationships. If we are, if we're not doing our marriage well, and that doesn't necessarily mean our marriage is thriving because it takes two, but if I'm not doing, being a spouse well, I'm probably not going to be doing other relationships yeah. well at a, at a core level. Does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. So one, one thing I'm saying there is, is this can be a, what you're saying, I think can be applied to all relationships, but in, in even more specifically to our, our marriages. But can you think of just a practical everyday 
or every weak way that what we're talking about can be applied. And I didn't uh, forewarn you of that question. <laughs> so <laughs> well, take some time to think it. Yeah, so I think I think when we talk about the two lies that you brought up from the book um, of thinking that I have some ground to defend and that that's the greatest good to be right um, and then also that there is one right way and it's my way. Um, letting go of those two ideas or at least holding them um, loosely helps me see the world and the relationships that I have differently. Um, I'm, I'm forever in front of a dry erase board, um, which I love. It is my happy place. I love dry erase boards. And so I usually have a dry erase marker the on, modern tool of a rabbi. Yeah, well, I hope. <laughs> I usually have a dry erase marker on me. So what I will inevitably do is hold that dry erase marker up and say, okay, so let's imagine this dry erase marker is everything that you know about any subject. It could be your spouse or a book of the Bible, whatever. Everything you know, everything you learn, what you know to be true. Now, put it in your hand. And our tendency is to grab it with a clenched fist and say, this is what I know to be true and you can't take it away from me. You know, come and take it good over my dead body kind of stuff. Like mm -hmm. I will defend this. I know it's right and true. And the reality is if I hold it like that, I can't receive anything new into my hand. My fist is clenched around it. Um, and if I try to share it with someone else, what they see is a fist and that's not very inviting. It's not something that people want to welcome into their life right. is a, is a clenched fist. But if I hold it with an open palm, just release my palm around it and hold it in my hand, it is just as close to me as it was when I was clenching it like grim death. Mm -hmm. It is just as accessible to me, but now with my open palm, I can receive new information. And if I want to share what I have, Someone can take it. And so we have this, it's, it's a matter of posture. Can I, can I hold the thing recognizing that I'm okay? I don't have to grasp it um, as though it's going to get away from me otherwise. Um, so if I could do that with these ideas, like I don't necessarily have to be right. And I don't necessarily have to defend anything here. Or, or you know, that's not the greatest good that just changing my posture will change the way that I'm able to, to show up in those relationships. Yes. I also think you're the therapist, but I've learned this from experts like you. This is going to begin with my relationship with myself. Um, my relationship with, you know, however you understand God so that if I'm not merciful, if I don't allow, you know, what, what I would say as a pastor, if I don't allow God to be merciful to me if I'm not forgiving of myself. Well, I'm not going to be forgiving of anybody else. Yes. I'm not going to go out and extend more grace to someone than I've allowed to work into my life. So if I don't readily accept the forgiveness and mercy of God in me, I'm not going to pass it on to my wife or my coworker. If I if I think that God's looking at me going, what have you done for me lately? That's my relationship to God, then yes, that's what I'm going to pass on to other people. Absolutely. So it does, uh, in recovery, what I've learned from my brothers and sisters in recovery is that um, they call this enlightened self-care. And the idea, which we all, if you've flown on a plane, uh, it's that should cabin pressure the yellow cabin. drop yeah. and these masks drop from the top, then you put your mask on first before you help others. Because if you're passed out, you're not any good to anyone. Um, you're not gonna be able to help anybody else get oxygen if you have passed out from a lack of oxygen. So take that to your life. You know, how, how are you putting the mask on in your own life to make sure you're breathing deeply um, so that you can show up to others um, with oxygen in your lungs? And if you're not, you're going to show up in different ways. That's making me think of something in uh, Genesis 1 where it says we're created in God's image, male and female. Yeah. And um, and then the, later on, the, and the two shall become one flesh. Hmm. And a lot of people 
think of that two becoming one flesh, it's like two halves making a whole. Mm-hmm. But somebody told me once that uh, some Hebrew scholar told them that it's the intention there is no, it's, it's several holes coming together to make an even better whole. So there's an implication of maybe Trinity and a whole husband and a whole wife. or Wow. Is that you ever heard? Of I haven't heard that, okay. but I like where you're going with it. I mean, that's a that's a that's big, big and, and mystic. I like that. So, what I got from that is, if I'm bringing, the more I'm bringing a, um, a an unwhole person to the marriage, uh, if assuming my spouse is doing the same thing, expecting each other to make each other whole, then we're really just two sick people making each other sicker. Ooh. We have. We have two different diseases that we're giving to each other. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas, you know, well, another way of saying this uh, is like, I heard some, somebody say once, um, the most romantic thing you can say to your spouse is, I don't need you. Hmm. But I want you. Okay. So I, I can be, is when, when I'm putting the cup on and taking care of myself first, where I'm healthy and whole, then I'm bringing a better mate to my spouse than if I'm saying I can't I can't do it without you I've got to you know you complete me kind of Jerry Maguire kind of <laughs> thinking yeah that can be oppressive at times right if you if you're not if it's always that way yeah it can be oppressive to the other person what do you think of that am I am I being led astray by a, a, a bad Hebrew scholar. <laughs> well, I would never say that. No, I, I'm intrigued by it. I don't think you're being led astray. And and even if we are being led astray and your listeners have decided that's the case, I, you know, there's no path down which Jesus won't go to get us. So we're going to learn something from this. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Well, if you could just say anything that you think my podcast listeners need to hear. What, what, what would it be? Listen to John Anderson. <laughs> no, no. Listen to this podcast. This man <laughs> no, has no, no. got your best interests at heart. <laughs> Trust him. Well, so do some of our leaders in government. No. <laughs> okay, so, no, okay, it just, if you if there was something you could, you hoped you might, that I might ask you today. That I didn't. Gosh, boy, these questions. This is, I have no idea. I um, I hope that the relationships that I have on a daily basis um, and therefore even a, a digital audio relationship ever so brief that I get to have with your listeners um, communicates rest and rhythm and freedom and just take a deep breath and recognize that you are the beloved child of a God who has always had you, has you now, and will always have you. And you are called into relationship and pursue that. Well, okay, that's about as perfect as you can get then. <laughs> that's the gospel message right there. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. Oh, your, your wife's name, I forgot. Stacy. Stacy. Yes. So I'm going to throw you one last curve. Okay, she is a saint and... Whatever she says is right. Okay. <laughs> What's the curve? What do you find yourself struggling the most with mm. that you can mention? <laughs> sure. Um, as a husband. Hmm. You know, um, something that we have picked up recently in the last couple of years that has been really helpful uh, for us was with, uh, we, we learned this from Brene Brown and it's these words, the story I'm telling myself is dot, dot, dot. And, um, the last couple of, you know, I don't know, arguments or serious conversations my wife and I have, have had since learning that that has been so helpful. It does require vulnerability. But it cut, it has like cut so much time and bull out of our um, conflicts because it's just, I can come in and say, okay, the story I'm telling myself is that you think this and 
you've decided this about me and I can just own it. This is where all my stuff is coming from. The story I'm telling myself is bleh. And I get to tell her the horrible narrative that I've written in my mind about her and our relationship and how she feels or vice versa. She can do that with me. And the thing is, and bringing that stuff into the light and owning that you have a narrative in your head that you're telling yourself it's lights the best antiseptic. It just, it almost evaporates right in front of you when you say it out loud and your spouse can react to what's really going on. You're owning all your frustration, your anxiety, your anger, whatever it is, you're owning it all. And when you own it all, you tend to deal with it a whole lot better than when you're blaming somebody else. Yeah. The, uh, Michael Mm -hmm. Singer wrote a book called, uh, the untethered soul. Great book. Um, Yes. And he talks, he uses the metaphor in there that we all have this voice in our head that he calls the roommate. And it's the voice in our head that we sometimes mistake for us. Like I'll think that the roommate voice in my head is actually Daryl, but it's not. Daryl is the one that listens to the roommate and considers what the roommate has to offer and thinks. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish, but, um, the reality is Michael Singer points out that your roommate has the worst ideas and always has the worst view of you. Um, and so like if your roommate was your friend, if somehow that voice in your head that you think is you could come out of your body and be your friend, you would break up with them. You'd be like, you're the worst friend ever. You're the one that tells me I'm fat and ugly and nobody likes me. Um, and if that roommate was your, yeah, if your roommate was your, therapist you'd fire them because they give you the worst advice ever like don't go talk to that person they hate you that's that voice yes um but just so so saying things like the story i'm telling myself is i I love that i love that that's that that right there was worth the whole time (laughs) all right yes yeah it just puts puts a voice on that roommate to say my roommate's saying this (laughs) my roommate's saying you don't love me uh because of xyz Mm. you know um and giving them a chance to actually speak truth to that roommate or vice versa is, mm. is saves time, saves energy, saves heartache. Oh yeah. I love that. Yeah. Perfect nugget. All right. Well, what's next on your agenda? I have a, uh, a church meeting. That's, uh, all right. The, a, a, a continuing plague on the earth that did not get quashed by the Exodus <laughs> cats and church meetings. Yes. yes. <laughs> they go on. Well, Lord, may this be a productive one, one in a million church meetings. <laughs> As if. As if. As if that exists. Uh, thanks a whole lot, yeah. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com.